Thor does not like gin. Or vermouth. <laughs> We've decided he's a whiskey-only dog. <laughs> it's from Scotland. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof, now we're lowering the floor. The band is blistered, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four, one, two, three, four. Welcome to Whiskey Topic. My name is Mark Bylock. I'm the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. Our topic today is gin. Yes, gin. I know. It's not whiskey. What? It's not. It's like a spirit. I, I don't even know. But we're here with my good friend, our good friend, Mike DeCaro, which is a wine writer. This is getting very confusing, I realize. Welcome to the show, Mike. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, everyone. It all, all kind of makes sense in a few moments when I kind of, kind of, if you would indulge me in listening to sort of my story. Yeah. Because uh, the topic here started because we were at a, we were at a gin tasting, uh, Mike and I, uh, for Death Store Gin. And they got a great story. We, we can talk about a little bit about it. But the idea being is they're making gin now, but they're also making whiskey. And there's really a lot of whiskey companies that start making gin because whiskey takes a lot of time to make. I mean, it really oh, yes. does. Um, so normally uh, distilleries make gin and vodka, which are related. And Mike will tell us how. I'm sure everybody right. knows. Um, right. but, uh, but the whole idea is that gin products you know they're made in distilleries and um usually the original products of any distilleries comes from gin so mike yeah so i know mark introduced me as a wine sort of writer and that's sort of my main passion but i actually kind of started with spirits in a roundabout way um you know in high school i had my little vodka phase and i decided you know i would i would befriend a vodka tree farmer and we'd plant bottles in Russia <laughs> and you know we would you know we'd make vodka sometime and that's how that was my retirement plan as silly as that sounds um, but then you know I got to university and I decided you know to learn a little bit more about uh, gin I came across gin you're like what is gin well gin is basically flavored vodka it's the original ultimate flavored vodka um, so I decided to get into that and then I learned a little bit about cocktail culture and you know the most iconic drink of all time is the martini and the martini is always made with gin always <laughs> a thousand percent there is none of this vodka thing do you actually know what the original what the vodka martini was actually called uh -huh. when it started it was called a kangaroo that's why? a terrible name you're right that's why <laughs> no one you would be laughed out of a bar if someone ordered a kangaroo. So, so I should you know why it's not called a kangaroo anymore. So I should go to a bar and be like, I would like a kangaroo. Ooh, and when they pause, not knowing what to say, I'd be like, and I want it shaken, not oh, stirred. Stir. And they'll be like, you're an idiot. Get out of right. here. But wait, yes. but wait what, if I, what if I like a Vesper? Which is half gin, half vodka. Is still, that allowed? You still have gin in there, and that's a completely separate drink. Yes. So, yes, that is yes. definitely All allowed. Right. Yes. All right. Just don't put any vodka in there with vermouth and, you know, your bitters and call it a martini, please. Side topic. Are, yes. are, are martinis always made with bad vodkas? Sorry, bad vermouths? Um, not always, but I think, you know, as, as you probably talked to someone who works behind a bar... That bottle of vermouth there that's kind of sitting on the shelf, unless it's like a really well-known bar, isn't necessarily the freshest. And so not always great vermouth there. So, you know, they buy those big liter bottles and it kind of sits there open in the warm, you know, behind the bar for a month and not so tasty. Yeah, Mike's very polite. He's been over at my place yes. many times for many parties. And he's like, hey, you know, uh, vermouth is like, kind of like wine you should probably put that in a fridge once you open it i'm like what i've never seen vermouth in a fridge ever uh -oh. at a bar but i realized at a bar they go through so much vermouth right. like a, in theory in theory they go through a lot of vermouth <laughs> they're like whatever it's gonna be open for like a few days but it, it actually should be in a fridge yeah i mean it sort of makes sense you put things in the fridge to kind of slow down their slow rot over time that's why you know you know fruit and meat and stuff goes in the fridge and it lasts a little longer in there than it would on your counter. So same kind of applies with 
vermouth. Because it hasn't been distilled. It's a correct. It's a fermented product. Right. All right. Back to gin. So we, back to gin. We've yes. had Death, Death Store, Store gin, um, which um, is an interesting product because they do dog. <laughs> dog. Uh, where were we? So we we're talking about Death Store. Yeah. Tell us about Death Store. So Death Store is sort of started out of Wisconsin. Um, the background of the founders kind of comes from um, farming and a little bit marketing and kind of business development. And so the idea was sort of to figure out how can we sort of keep these local farmers employed up here. They're on an island in the, in the lake in northern Wisconsin. I think that's Lake Superior, but... I don't know. I'm sure could somebody will tweet you if you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be Lake Michigan in that area. Oh, totally. I don't Saint, even know Saint why Saint I'm talking to about Mike this. <laughs> Mike DeCaro on Twitter. Yeah. Just, just, geography lesson is yeah. happening. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible geography. But anyway, yes, sort of based out of, out of Wisconsin in an island, sort of off the mainland, and uh, trying to figure out how to keep these farmers employed in an industry where they aren't necessarily employed, you know, all times of year. So you grow sort of local products. I think he started out with bread, if I remember correctly, and then decided, well, you know, with the grains we grow on here, bread, it's only going to kind of get us so far and people are only really willing to pay so much for a loaf. And so the next kind of uh, value item thing was, was beer. Not, yeah. Yeah, was beer. So, you know, he partnered up with some local breweries, was really successful with that. And then out came Distilled Spirits. That was sort of the next step there. So they've decided to keep everything local, only three botanicals. I think about the only other major gin that I'm aware of that has three botanicals is Tanqueray. So I believe it was fennel, coriander seed, and juniper there. Gin always needs juniper. So the botanicals are the flavoring to the vodka. Correct. So you take vodka, um, you know, a neutral grain spirit, and you need to have juniper to make it gin. That's kind of literally your only rule with gin. Juniper has to be in there. It doesn't necessarily need to be the predominant note, mm -hmm. but it has to be juniper. And we're going to need to go in a little bit of a history lesson to quite understand why it's juniper. Is juniper what makes gin smell like gin? Correct. Okay. It's that sort of piney, resiny, kind of Christmas tree kind of smell. It's exactly that. Yeah. Um, so that's juniper. So the actual story of gin starts actually in northern Italy in the, I believe it was the 11th century. Oh, this and is so why we have somebody named DeCaro on this show talking about gin. The reason why it starts there is because that's actually a great area to grow juniper. Okay. Oh. Um, and so they've got all these sort of wines that they're sort of making. And, you know, the art of wine making and, you know, distillation is still, it started, but it's sparse in places. And it's not necessarily a fine art. So the stuff you get is pretty foul, um, even when it's fresh. Yeah. And so juniper is pretty strong, and it's a great way to cover things up. Oh, it must be the oh. sulfur too, right? Because you get a right. lot of sulfurs. If you use a lot of copper, you'll get that very sulfury whiskey. Um, right. Juniper so you can kind of mask that. cover exactly all sorts of stuff up there. Juniper also was done by monks. And juniper was thought to cure all sorts of ailments. Later on, you would have the Black Plague, and juniper was thought to be one of the magic things. Not and a cure. Whole, not understanding that whole medicine thing yet. <laughs> it was all a bit alchemy. There. So the next step to it is actually comes into the lowlands, so the Netherlands. Um, you know, the area where we would call modern um, Belgium and Holland. And how the heck does it go from Italy to up there? Well, there was this thing called the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> and so, you know, like 400 years of European history, um, they were interconnected. They were actually, the lowlands were actually kind of ruled by the Holy Roman Empire officially. Officially. I say that officially because... If anyone knows why they're the lowlands, 
it's literally low, like it's below sea level. Right. And so that really wasn't a developed area because there wasn't a, the population nor was there the will to kind of settle that area. And so, you know, a few hundred years come along, we get the population area, they build up the dikes, and now you've got development here. They start farming. These people are pretty good at capitalism. They form farmers, they get guilds. And now all of a sudden we get a population center going. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of used to a little bit of independent rule. So they've kind of, even though they're under the Holy Roman Empire, they've kind of got their own kind of rules there. What eight, was what year is this? Like where we're talking about here, this is sort of like after the 11th century. We're talking between there. This is like the 12, 1200s, 1300s. This is sort of starting to develop and happen. Mm -hmm. And then it really sort of starts to kick off um, after you've got this thing called like the 80 Years War and the 30 Years War. I don't want to bore you with too much European history. But you could. But, but you won't. <laughs> essentially, Spain is sort of fighting over this area that they technically control because they're at the head of the Holy Roman Empire with these new Protestant movement, which has sort of come through through Germany, you know, which is right next door to Belgium and the Netherlands there. And these sort of independent guilds where, you know, Protestant is Protestant the Protestant religion and Calvinism are kind of developing there. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of used to their own rules, like I said. So they're kind of fighting against this. Right, right, right. So this is sort of where they start to develop. And, you know, they're not so into this whole, like, wine thing. So they're, they're developing grain. That's kind of what grows there. They're used to their center of, um, you know, commerce. And they're distilling this with juniper through the Holy Roman Empire there. And so they developed this thing called Yennefer. Okay. And that's sort of the precursor to um, modern gin. And the way this is sort of takes off is because as this area becomes an area of commerce, because one is right by the ocean, this is at the time you're starting to explore like the new world um, and trying to find passages to... Uh, the East. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it becomes like a center for the pepper trade. It becomes a center for um, textiles. All of this is sort of happening in the Netherlands, and now people are flocking in there. This becomes an area of science. Distillation sort of starts to get real serious, yeah. and this sort of becomes kind of the national beverage. So they develop this thing called Yetiver. And the way, the next step is it gets to England, where we all think sort of gin kind of originates. Yeah. And the reason it does that is the Thirty Years' War. Mm -hmm. So the English are kind of separating away from Catholicism at this point. So they come in and they sort of align with, you know, the Protestants who are fighting against the uh, Spanish who are a part of you know, the Holy Roman Empire. There's a little bit of a civil war happening to kind of control this Netherlands and this new area of commerce and power. Yeah. So they fight alongside the Dutch soldiers, and they're drinking this Yennefer thing. Mm -hmm. And apparently they're drinking it like, the soldiers are drinking it like crazy, like they're wasted, they're all brave. <laughs> and they're like running out headfirst into this gunfire. And there's this expression that they get, which is called, um, when you drink, you're getting your Dutch courage. Yeah. Well, that comes from drinking this Yennefer. So the British kind of get a taste of this stuff, and this now moves up into Britain. But the way it really solidifies is you have William of Orange, who ends up becoming the King of England mm -hmm. and Scotland up here at this point, and we're talking the late 1600s, early 1700s, and that's sort of when his rule is. The actual English kind of invite him in, the Protestant half, because mm -hmm. um, they kind of don't want the Spanish kind of taking over there. Otherwise, they'd be drinking sherry. Exactly. <laughs> right, nobody right. wants right. sherry. No. Drinking <laughs> sherry. They wanted what would eventually become whiskey. 
you got it. And yeah. so that's sort of ah. where the development of, of uh, you know, a whiskey sort of comes from too. Because now he's, he's encouraging the use of Jennifer and grains, right? They've got excess grains. Kind of there's a bad barley harvest. So, you know, beer isn't that, um, you know, beer takes a bit of a hit. So he's encouraging, you know, the distillation of, of grains. And this gin gets crazy for a little while. Like every man, woman, and child is drinking liters of this stuff. <laughs> I, I find wasted. it interesting that um, wars in our history have to do with drinking like a spirit. A thousand so percent. So yeah, I mean, the gin drinking kind of gets out of control there for a while. And, you know, they eventually kind of, they do it. They repeal, they sort of repeal the free for all mentality that, that they've had, which basically there was a point where all you had to do is post a notice on a door and you left it there for 10 days and you were like a gin distiller and you were making this <laughs> stuff in your bathtub. So it was super low quality stuff. All the poor people were wasted all the time um, and poisoned, alcohol poisoning, because there was all sorts of nasty stuff because you were kind of doing this quick. So. Eventually, this stuff sort of develops, um, and it gets a little bit, it changes. Um, the Yennefer stuff, early distillation, so it was kind of more grain-based, and it's actually a little bit whiskey-like. Mm -hmm. It still has this juniper in it, but it's still a little bit whiskey-like. And the missing link that sort of comes in here is something called Old Tom Gin. And Old Tom Gin was like between what becomes London Dry. We don't have any Old Tom Gin today. Um, there are some revivals that have happened in the last little while, but it's sort of like slightly sweeter like Yennefer is. Um, but it still has sort of that juniper kind of essence there. And it's sort of getting towards London Dry there. And the reason why it's called Old Tom is it has to do with the distillers who were actually kind of left and paid the eventual higher tax uh -huh. um, that, you know, was introduced to curb the whole gin craze there. And it was, you know, mother's ruin and all that kind of jazz. Right. Um, and so basically they, what you would do, because people were still kind of addicted to this gin, uh -huh. you would kind of go to a little alley and you would drop a little coin and you were looking for this cat-like black cat, this wooden black cat. You drop a coin in the slot next to it and a bartender would pour some gin down a slot through you. And this is where the, old, the cat was called Old Tom. So hence the name kind of Old Tom Gin. So you could sort of like do this in secret and private, but you know, you still got your gin. And so eventually, this style called London Dry develops and it takes over. So distillation gets better. You're able to make a drier product. You're able to make it more palatable. And so that kind of takes over. There's a whole bunch of ones in London. So that's why the name is London Dry. And gin sort of spreads now because the Dutch sort of had their day with the Dutch East India Company. Um, and you know they're adding all these spices in that they're bringing in to make this gin. So it's not just juniper, it's all these other exotic spices like coriander and things they're bringing over from the new world, or I guess the East, not the new world. Um, and so the British have sort of taken over the spice trade. So this is why it sort of becomes the center of kind of gin production. They've got all these new spices in, they distill it into this beverage. It's really quick. You don't really have to age it that long, and they ship it back. Now, what what grains were used back then for gin? What grains were used? Yeah, um, I mean, know, I guess whatever anything. you sort of had, you know, whatever you could grow sort of locally. wasn't much corn back then. Um, you definitely had, um, you know, barley, um, you know, wheat. Um, could be used. Anything you sort of had an excess from in harvest was a great way to use up. And then later, you know, as the new world sort of developed, you had also sugar-based things and beets because you could get that to do more neutral and efficient than grains. You know, as the technology developed, 
you could do a grain spirit more neutral, but that was sort of a different development that you're bringing out sugar. Yeah, so I say by more neutral, I mean they right. just distilled to such a high proof that any flavor that came from whether it was a potato or a yeah, beet, I mean, it didn't matter. It just kind of tasted that, that sort of neutral. kind of starts to develop like 1800, 1900s. We start to get way better distillation, and it's sort of you can make a drier and you sort of get that style. So, you know, British is ruling the seas. You get different styles. There's London Dry. There's also a style called Plymouth. Plymouth was sort of closest to the big naval ships there. And Plymouth is still a style. There's only one distillery left there, the Blackfriars. They're the only ones who can make Plymouth gin. You can only make Plymouth gin in there. It has something to do with the softer water there. Um, and it sort of spreads there. You have the development of the gin and tonic there. Um, people go overseas there. Um, and they're getting malaria. But they decide, they find out the tonic, the quinine in tonic, is a good protector against malaria. Science has proven you would need to drink way too much tonic <laughs> to do this now. But they thought it was somewhat effective. And I'm sure it was anecdotally a bit effective. Like, oh my gosh, I'm drinking this and you know, the mosquitoes are sort of going away for a bit or I slightly feel better because I'm probably drinking booze. <laughs> um, so the quinine, if you've ever had it, is horribly bitter. Like that whole big two liter bottle of tonic, like you're putting like a, I don't know, a half a quarter teaspoon in that whole thing. And you're putting a crap ton of sugar in tonic water. In fact, short of Coke, tonic water has the most sugar in it of any kind of carbonated beverage. And that's because that quinine is so bitter. So they figure out a way, let's make this palatable. They mix water, they mix limes that they have, sugar, and this gin mm -hmm. that they have because you know they're bringing it back and every Navy ship has got this gin. So that's kind of how they end up mixing it. And the limes also help with scurvy, which is okay. another oh. problem that they have. And at you know during this time, there's also the development of something called roses. Mm -hmm. um, roses is a lime cordial, um, essentially concentrated lime and sugar syrup. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something that develops along the line of drink with gin also, because that's what they had on hand, yeah. called a gimlet. And some people would say squeeze fresh limes, but you know, roses was so much more convenient. You know, once that sort of started getting developed, um, you can concentrate instead of bringing a whole bunch of perishable limes, you have this cordial syrup that would keep forever. So you would keep that, you mix those two, and hence the sort of gimlet. And so the next gin sort of falls out of favor eventually. It falls out of favor after the sort of British Empire starts to fall. Um, America sort of starts to take over as the world power. Gin is still kind of awesome because you've got the cocktail age. Mm -hmm. And you get this dr magic drink called the martini developed, mm -hmm. which used, you know, gin. This was the sort of clear spirit at the time. America still kind of looked up a little bit to, to Britain as, you know, a power to aspire to. Mm -hmm. We're talking, you know, before World War One and America truly kind of sets the stage and, you know, becomes the world power that it does for the next century. And so they're drinking that, you know, cocktails and then gin comes. But then, you know, World War II sort of comes around and vodka kind of starts to take over. You've got this kind of James Bond guy who's kind of cool and he's starting to order like He's, you know, spying with the Russians and you've got this whole Cold War thing and he's sleeping with the enemy and there's this whole... Ordering kangaroos. You got it, ordering <laughs> kangaroos and you get this thing called like Smirnoff that comes in here and all of a sudden like, you know, the baby boom culture doesn't want to drink what their parents were drinking and you've got this pseudo-illicit thing called vodka and that sort of starts to take over as Blech. a neutral grain spirit and it's sort of last for, well, I would say the next part, good part of 50 years, kind of. And vodka still does dominate. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's sort of where it takes over. Gin sort of starts to take a decline as like the primary white spirit um, of the world. But it starts to get a re renaissance after people are kind of sick of these 
cocktails and we get these alco pops. We've all lived through this, you know, in the 90s. <laughs> and, you know, these sugary drinks. And then, you know, people want to go back to like the golden age of all these old original cocktails. And then gin sort of starts to start into fashion again. You get these micro distilleries kind of start to open up and we kind of get like modern American gin. So that's kind of like the story of gin now. Um, yeah, and it's kind of making a bit of a comeback. You've brought yeah. a lot of gin with you. I have brought a yes, lot of gin thank with you. me. We've actually had a pre-podcast yes. gin tasting. We did. Because we're like, Mike, we cannot drink like 15 gins on one no, podcast. We, we, we need to like narrow this down. Um, so what do we want to start with? Do you want to start with the Yennefer? Start with this. Yes, let's start with the Yennefer. We have a Zudem Yennefer. It's a young grand Yennefer. I got this like at the last time it was through the LCBO. So this is a while ago. So this is kind of the original precursor to gin. Now, Yennefer is kind of a weird beverage. There's kind of a couple of different distinctions. There's old and young. This is young. It doesn't actually have to do with the age. It has to do with sort of the older and the younger style. This is a younger style. It's kind of made in the more modern. You had different kinds of grains being used. This one's like a third barley, a third corn, and what is the other third? I think it is rye. It tastes very little, like, it smells very little like gin. It doesn't have that predominant no. gin at all. Like it's, yeah. No, this one's sort of, it's a little bit sweeter. Um, the regulations I think are about 10 grams, 10 grams per liter of residual sugar, and it's got to be 50% kind of, or 15% malt based. Since this is called Gran, it's more than that. But that's sort of the original precursor of gin. That's kind of what started the craze there. And you can kind of see the whiskey-like um, characters there. And a lot of those original kind of whiskeys, when scotch sort of starts developing aren't all dissimilar to this right you're kind of not aging in oak as long you want to kind of get your product out sooner it was kind of like this you've kind of got that grain character there that you would in there so that's kind of like the most whiskey like that you would get in in a gin I, and, I know, really like that. Are, it's really these nice. These are still kind of made there. Um, you know, you can get them all throughout the lowlands. It's just never kind of taken off here, I guess, because you've got all these Dutch labels. It's kind of like German wine that way. You're like, oh, this compound language, and there's like extra vowels and so many more consonants next to each other, and it's all foreign. So why would I kind of drink that? But they, they have a wax seal on a nice bottle. I they mean, do. How much, uh, how much was that bottle? probably cost me about 25 30 bucks like it wasn't super expensive yeah. but you know it was just kind of one of those things where i had taken a trip to to uh, belgium years ago and you know i kind of got into drinking a little bit of yennever when i was there because mm -hmm. they have this crazy little custom you can go in a yennever bar and the way yennever is drunk they pour it in like shot glasses for you but they fill the shot glass to the absolute brim. Like the <laughs> meniscus is kind of going over. You're like, you can't yes. possibly fit in. Like, I'm draw more of liquid, and this stuff will spill out. Yeah. And if you have no idea what, like, this is a great way, like, they love to, like, passive-aggressively play with people. They're, yeah, yeah. They're really friendly people, but they love to do that. So you pour it out, and you know who's, like, done this before immediately. Because the actual custom is you kind of bend at the waist at the bar and you sip the first bit out of it. Uh -huh. oh. So you're not spilling anything. Yeah. Now, you know, if you're a tourist and you're North American and you're used to shots, you just pick that up thing right away and everyone's kind of snickering at you because you've spilled a whole bunch of your drink. They're snickering at you because you didn't weirdly bend over yeah. the bar. And this is like, no this idea. is good though. If now people will know. Absolutely. Now people That's will know. That's how you drink your universe. Yeah. Right. Travel talk. Yeah, I really like it because it's like, it is, it's cereally and it's, it's mm -hmm. that Absolutely. sort of like lovely grain without being like a lot of those sort of like white dogs and like white lightnings and the, the new makes that you get that are really harsh. 
I don't find it to be super harsh at all. It's actually quite balanced and yeah. it's lovely for a grain, basically like a grain. Yeah, and I mean, we have some that are aged a little bit like in Sorry. oak for a little bit. We have, we have some that are aged in oak, you know, a little bit longer. So they get a little bit more of that whiskey character. But the idea is not to pretend to be whiskey. Like right. it's still yeah. Yennefer. I mean, it's really great. It's great. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't, I'm not a big fan of white dog whiskey. Well, no, and I no. know it's, it gets a little nerve wracking when you're like, oh, it's a white grain whiskey. Like, yeah, I'm expecting this sort of like flavor profile. It's and it's sharp and usually yeah. grassy yeah. and just really kind of pungent, I find there. Yeah. And, you know, really alco- like the alcohol really sort of stands out. Because I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a high proof kind of sure. essentially a solvent. You're yeah. trying to extract as much as you can from the barrel when you're making whiskey. Like that's where the vast majority of your flavor comes from. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you want something that's when it's young, it's it's sharp and it's going to pull those things out. You're not meant to sort of really drink that on its own. Yeah, yeah. In it, in that young stage, and that's sort of where this was more developed over hundreds of years as something to sort of drink young, but also kind of that way. So looks like mm-hmm. Mark is grabbing <laughs> the Plymouth next. Yes, the Plymouth. He, so does, the Plymouth, he does that. Plymouth gin. And made um, in Plymouth County in, in Gin World. I believe that's yes. what Mike said. Yeah, I, exactly. I was paying attention, yeah. yeah. Plymouth, you know, southern coast of England there where all the naval yards were. Sort of seven bis- botanicals. Um, copper pot still. It's a little bit sweeter than sort of the London Dry, which is sort of, I find it's a little bit softer. They will claim it's the water there. Um, Yeah, and I think it's sort of a really good gin. This was sort of the stuff called for in the original martini. Um, So it's got, you know, some historic um, precedents there. The original, one of the original written recipes, because there's some debate. You've got the martinis first. But yeah, I I really like it. Um, I find it's a great gin. It's a little bit sweeter. I find it sort of a little bit more balanced than, than the kind of London Dry and some of those other botanicals. Like they have, I think, orris root and you know uh, the cinnamon and cassia and and the uh, coriander and those kind of things are able to sort of play up against a classic London Dry like like regular Tanqueray. I know Diageo is going to hate this. I really, really cannot drink Tanqueray. It's, I find it horrible. Just that juniper punch. It's like yeah. I got my, you know, give me my gin, my juniper juice, concentrated and mashed, and a pine needle swizzle stick for it. And that's really and like a lot of people. That's their face. first impression of gin is Tanqueray, right. because that's right. everywhere. Like, what gin do I buy? Smells Tanqueray. like grandma and Chris during Christmas. That's really nice. She the, got uh, drunk and she fell into the tree, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's pretty much Tanqueray. But I love Tanqueray Ten, right? And Tanqueray Ten was sort of their more modern style, yeah, um, ultra premium gin, um, more citrus forward. So. I love that, but and I can't actually understand how the two products are related at all. But you know, somehow Tanqueray and Tanqueray Ten exist under the same level. Well, I was gonna say that that Plymouth uh, Gin uh, had a nice finish to it. Like it was uh, not uh, on the nose, very much a gin, but like through the flavor, like it was it was a longer finish, more complex drink, uh, very very nicely done. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, fine. sweetness is there definitely, uh, but not great mixer and yeah. in a martini where you have that vermouth and there's some of that, especially the more modern style now because we got used to that whole ultra dry thing. We had those ridiculous people who, with the atomizers. You can actually blame Winston Churchill for starting that trend because <laughs> I think he said he had like ver- there's two stories. He either had vermouth in a cabinet mm-hmm. and he just sort of like. Like stared in its general, glanced like at it, yeah. glanced over that yeah. kind of like waved, I've, like took it out of the cabinet, yeah. maybe kind of like looked at it and poured his straight gin in his glass, and that was his martini. Or you know there was the thought that he would just, you know, 
face himself towards France and kind of like salute in his general direction and pour himself a glass of straight gin. And so we kind of took it to that extreme. But, you know, in recent years with more classic cocktails, it's actually come back. And you've got something like the perfect martini. And the perfect martini isn't the perfect tasting martini. It's 50% um, uh, gin and vermouth. What came first, the perfect martini or the perfect Manhattan? Good question. Good question. It's funny because Sarah also mentioned the perfect Manhattan. So there you go. I I know. Yeah. One of them were perfect first. I don't know. Uh, But I have a question in terms of like, um, is there a rule uh, as to how many times you're distilling your like grain neutral spirit before or is it? That's a free-for-all. It doesn't matter. That's sort of a free-for-all. I mean, a lot of stuff is made, gin is made in a column still, like mm-hmm. the vast majority of whiskey and actually spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just trying to get most efficient there. Uh, you know, you just have to... There's like slightly different variations on rules on whether you have to infuse it and redistill it right. with the botanicals right. there. But yeah, you're essentially sort of trying to make, you know, your high-proof potent spirit you're doing some sort of infusion with the botanicals right and then you're kind of cutting it and redistilling it kind of based upon you know taste and flavor so i've heard that it, there's like you can make it in two different ways you can put the botanicals actually in the column still like right. on the on top of the like right. each, uh copper yeah that's piece. gonna come in actually later in this botanist oh okay then i won't i will not go that far ahead you spoiled the show or do we actually want to talk we, we can actually skip ahead to that or do you want to talk about some government first yeah what are you drinking over there? Mark's well, already pulled the I know. Third I was going to say, out. so I got the agave uh, premium, Canadian this premium. Ungava, which un-gava. is a Canadian agave. I'm like thinking tequila. I'm like, you tequila? There's missing a U, the V, the gin. There's a U at the start. I don't know. Ungava. It's a really weird looking gin in that it's kind of bright yellow. It kind of looks like banana schnapps yellow yes that's um, what it was i was like. gonna say something <laughs> yeah well or yellow snow <laughs> like like melted yellow snow that's right that's exactly yeah, right we're, yes. Yes. Yeah. Melted yeah. Yellow yellow we're snow. gonna be that crass. after a night of drinking you got yes. it um and the reason it's kind of that is that it actually this was sort of developed in in northern quebec it's sort of a quebec-based company out of montreal and in that area there where it kind of meets Labrador and you get into the Canadian Arctic. And so they're using a lot of Arctic botanicals and local botanicals. So that's kind of the idea of kind of pulling back from some of these original Yennevers um, and gins. It's using a little bit of not only the exotic things, you need that juniper, but also things that kind of grow locally. And that's sort of what they're doing. They've got like labrador tea in there and cloudberries and all sorts of things that you don't necessarily see in a normal gin and i think it's actually kind of a a unique kind of interesting story it's great value it's like about 35 bucks at the lcbo i i I like it um why is it so yellow versus the other gins we've had so far it's well i mean juniper kind of if you've seen like like more raw kind of uh, a gin, you know, before it kind of gets restilled or necessarily filtered, and it's got some of those essential oils. It's kind of like cloudy blue whitish because, you know, juniper berries are that dark blue, and depending on how much of that essential oil you're trying to infuse, um, arguably a lot right. without getting bitter, especially if you're redistilling this a lot, yeah, you're yeah. going to lose some of that essential oil some of that heavier stuff gets left behind right okay um yeah and it's just the other botanicals that they're using in there it's actually colored gins aren't necessarily a new thing Mm -hmm. um i've seen saffron colored gins before um you know there's uh the london number one um which is owned by um Gonzalez uh, Bayless. It's um, the company that owns Tierro Pepe, the Spanish-based sherry company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have like a London dry gin. And you're like, why Why is the Spanish company making London dry gin? Well, one of the biggest trends in, I guess, the last 
15 years is actually gin. They call it gin tonic in Spain. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of become a drink of choice. It kind of became a drink of choice. Um, a little bit in that molecular gastronomy movement. It was yeah, kind of like, that. like the back of Spain, house drinks. And they tonic. sort of take it really seriously. Like they have, you don't just like go, can I have a gin and tonic? And they don't just pour you that Tanqueray and Schweppes that they have at the rail there. They ask you, it's a little bit of an interview process. It's like talking to a sommelier and being like, may I have a glass of wine? And you're like, you have a little bit of a conversation. You're like, well, what kinds do you like? <laughs> and so you got your choice of gin. You know, there may be a choice of tonic. And then there's a choice of like garnishes, hmm. you know, from like rosemary, maybe some olives, some citrus twists and other stuff in there that they would put in there. And they do it in a, like a wine balloon glass. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, a little bit of an interesting modern twine. So the next gin I am passing Mark is a Sip Smith. And Sip Smith is kind of an interesting story. Um, ex big brewers, um, one of the guys was at Fuller's and the other guy was at Diageo. And they kind of split away um, and kind of decided to do their own thing. They opened the first um, copper pot still in the city of London in 150 years, a few years ago. And this is their kind of London dry. Um, So you're starting to see gin sort of come back after the Americans sort of kind of took over and um, came to prominence with these craft distillers. You're starting to see craft distillers kind of pop up in, you know, gin's home for a while. And uh, I kind of like that one. It's, you know, still got that classic, a little bit kind of juniper forward character to it. Um, But it's not in that old school, completely London dry style. I like this a lot. It's it's got a certain flavor profile. I I can't identify it, so I'm not a gin drinker. But but it's got this really nice kind of not too sweet. I would say of the ones we've tried so far, the sweetness is balanced really nicely on this one. Um, it doesn't smell as ginny, ginny, mm-hmm. yeah, ginny, ginny, ginny's good, yeah. yeah. Um, but it does have a lot of the uh, the characteristics that the the sweetness is a little nicely balanced. Um, is that a juniper on the bottle there? Is that what that's supposed to be? Yes. Okay, there you go. I know there what that go. looks like now. And kind of a swan head, yeah. um, you know, with the still. And swan heads are definitely there's types of stills that are swan heads. I know, Tanqueray Ten is made in a swan head still. Hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, it's kind fun. of interesting to see it. And you know, gin's kind of making a comeback in London. Um, the actual government has sort of lowered the taxation rate there, so they're trying to encourage um, exports of gin. Whiskey's actually fallen um, mm-hmm. considerably in the last few years, and so they're hoping that kind of gin can kind of make it up. It's something that doesn't, you know, take as long without the, you know, modern barrel aging process there. Yeah. So that's kind of what they're doing. They put it in embassies, trying to do a little promotional parties there, and then, yeah, trying to encourage it. Well, let's start with so the basics. I don't think we've covered them. Um, yeah. So gin is same thing as vodka. It could be made out of anything as long as it's Correct. A, as long as it can be converted to a like neutral grain spirit spirit. flavored with juniper juniper juniper. does not have to be the primary flavor but it has juniper but it it has to have juniper in it Um, and that's what makes gin gin barrel aged or doesn't matter can be can be barrel aged that's been a little bit of a modern trend in the last few years you've seen people do it Mm -hmm. Um, some less successfully than others it's not my particular yeah kind of game i would rather have just drink a whiskey and proof levels we've seen yeah. like 35 percent to 40 something very up i mean there's something mm-hmm. called like a navy strength that plymouth makes <laughs> um and actually the way that it actually comes is actually explains the whole reason why we call it proof oh so kind of what used to happen this actually a little bit has to do a little bit with rum too mm-hmm. so what happened was lower kind of officers were given rum kind of as rations and so the way they kind of figured out whether stuff was proof or overproof this was before you know uh 
the modern ways of figuring out uh, alcohol by gravity there where you know it involves how how something floats in water. Someone developed a nifty I've, little system. I was going to say, I've heard the stories a few yes. times, so I'm going to see if Mike DeCaro matches so the other stories. <laughs> what happens is they would get this gin and they would mix it with gunpowder. Yeah. And yep. whether this gunpowder would light or not, light afterwards, um, meant it was proof. So you proved that it was met proof. So you had overproof and underproof. It was under because they were getting skeptical, right? It yeah. would make sense. You've got all these naval officers here with a, given a whole bunch of rations there. You don't want them like wasted. Yeah. So it would make sense to try and, and spread this out and make it also cheaper by watering this down. Sure. So that's sort of how they got it. And the magic sort of proof level ends up being about 100 proof. Okay. It's kind of where that gunpowder can still kind of light. This is a yeah, great at home experiment. Uh, if you have gunpowder around, yes, um, do it. I don't. Yeah, no. and you know, Plymouth with their Navy heritage started calling that Navy strength. I was gonna say Glenn for Jameson's like our legal. Don't try that at home. Please don't. Not lawyer approved. But hey, lawyer's not here. So yeah, lawyer's not here today. Oh, that's why I say show us Glenn around. So the next gin we have is the botanist. This is actually kind of has a unique whiskey kind of connection here. It's made by the folks at uh, Brook Lottie. Yeah. Um, they've done really well with this product. In fact, I think at some point, I don't know whether this is still true, it actually sold better than any individual whiskey in the lineup. Right. And at Brook Lottie, we had uh, Mark Rainier on, right. on the podcast. And um, when they op reopened a distillery, they were looking at other means of getting revenue. And that right. gin was one of the ways they went. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the ways they did it was they've got, you know, this one has probably the most botanicals on the table. I think there's 31. Wow. There's uh -huh. nine that come from elsewhere around the world in that sort of classic, um, you know, London dry style where you're pulling these exotic spices and um, from all over the world. And they infuse that. They infuse the core for, I think, 28 hours or 24 hours. Um, and then they redistill it. And this is where Jamie's point comes back in. They redistill it with 22 local botanicals that they pull from around, um, around the island where the distillery is located. And those are more delicate. So they put those, they suspend them in a basket oh. in the still. Oh. And those sort of get that distillation through there. And it's sort of a, it's an interesting product. It kind of pulls a little bit from that modern American trend of pulling from, you know, those local sort of uh, spices and, you know, eating and drinking local. Mm -hmm. um, while also, you know, doing some of the old heritage. Um, and some of those early whiskeys were arguably kind of gin-like and probably more of that Yennefer-like than this is. Yeah. Um, but still sort of using that um, and yeah, making good use of the stills while you were uh, aging that whiskey and yeah. getting that to sort of perfection. It, it is definitely the most dry kind of like of the ones we've had for me, yeah. like palette wise, super dry. Um, a little like the dark, a little too sweet dry for me. I, probably my least favorite. I'd, yeah. Yeah, I, of the bunch. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite gin. I think it's a pretty good gin, um, you know, and I think they're sort of doing some some interesting things sort of with it and pulling in some of those local botanicals. Do they need all 31 with all those 22 extras? That's sort of the argument with some of that other approach to making gin, right? Yeah. Is it simpler, better? Like, I'm not sure that three that we get sort of in Death Store and Tanqueray are, is great. I Might think you need enough. to do yeah. a little bit more. Do I think that 31 is probably better? I don't know if you're pulling them all out Yeah. at that point, and I'm not sure whether they all necessarily blend into one. But, I mean, it's certainly an interesting sort of experiment. And a lot of, the vast majority of gin is now made in Scotland. So 
you could say this is kind of part of the movement of that modern Scottish style, which is probably most famously made by, by Hendrix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, right. You know, with that whole, they do it a little bit unusual because they do a, a rose petal and cucumber infusion. I really do not like Hendrix either. Um, <laughs> Which do you like? What's like your favorite? Cucumbers. What's my favorite What's your favorite? Gin? Yeah. Um, it's a very good question. Um, locally, I kind of like the Dylan's gin. Um, I also like the, the other Zudem dry gin, which we tried earlier, um, which wasn't necessarily everyone's favorite. It's a little bit of an odd. It wasn't my favorite. Because I think it actually, it has vanilla in it, which is oh. an unusual botanical yeah. um, in gin. And so I kind of like those because I also like Yennefer. And I feel that those two are kind of a little bit of both styles. Mm -hmm. Like it's not completely sort of London dry, but it's not, um, you know, Yennefer either where it's, that super kind of grainy right. uh, base spirit there. So those are kind of two of my favorites. And Plymouth. Plymouth's sort of always been a go-to, but mm -hmm. um, it really got expensive in the last few years. It almost doubled in price mm -hmm. wow. um, overnight at some place. And you, there's a big kerfuffle here in Ontario um, of people trying to... When they, when they heard about it, they were definitely yeah. like hoarding it beforehand and buying up as sort of much as they could. Well, we've been drinking. Uh, we've been drinking gin straight yeah. the whole time, and I've actually been enjoying a lot. Of, like I've been yeah. enjoying these gin, gins too. a lot. Um, what are you uh, cocktail wise? What are you cocktail recommend? wise? Um, martinis are always sort of classic. You can't go wrong with that sort of gin and vermouth. You know, I would argue try it. Try it with a little more vermouth than you're probably used to and okay. see whether you kind of like that. A dry, um, dry vermouth versus well, sweet? Dry, yeah. yes, dry. Unless you're kind of playing around with that old school Martinez thing where things were definitely a little bit more sweeter. Mm -hmm. um, or you could do a mix of both. Sure. Sweet and dry. But mm -hmm. definitely do that. Always include some bitters. I think bitters is a key hmm. aspect in, in cocktails that are sort of missing. I think, um, I think somebody argued, uh, I've, I've heard this, for, they're like, unless it has bitters, it's not a cocktail. I've, I've heard that argument before, too. Sure. And I'd sort of sure. agree to that. You know, a little bit of bitters in there. Uh, another classic, obviously, gin and tonic, sort of always classic. I know we touched on the gimlet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, roses is pretty sweet. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure you'd want to go the... Um, Roman Chandler, sort of um, the author, where you know the argument was a gimlet is fifty percent roses and fifty percent gin and nothing else. <laughs> so I've had that made at like an arena bar before, where they had they didn't even have tonic, but for some reason they had roses. So I I taught them how to make a gimlet, and that's what I kind of drank up there instead of <laughs> shitty beer. Um, so yeah. You can you can kind of find it in weird places sometimes. So, but yeah, not necessarily my favorite cocktail. One of the one of my favorites though is something called the Aviation. Um, one of the gins we did not go with um, is Aviation out of Portland. Beautiful sort of jazz age esque kind of bottle. There, we should pour some Aviation right now. Um, sure. Yeah. And where the name actually comes from is a cocktail called the Aviation, which was sort of popularized around I guess the end of World War One, kind of the beginning of the jazz age in the roaring 20s and flight was sort of starting to become you know more practical and popular you had to be an elite to do it like yeah. you know we're talking like Howard Hughes kind of territory here sure. you know there was still 24 prop silent films engine, yeah. you got it yeah so why it's called an aviation well, here, let me give you the ingredients first. It's gin, it's lemon juice, it's maraschino liqueur. If you've never had that, that stuff's actually pretty delicious. Um, it's named after the variety of cherry, which I'm sure is what we originally used instead of this artificially dyed neon, super sweet, sugary syrup, disgusting, I'm sure would survive a nuclear war kind of cherry here. But those are sort of growing in like Croatia, kind of around the coast. And 
where you find this maraschino, it's actually it's a liqueur made from these sort of cherries, and they're delicious. So only, it's that. Only Mike DeCaro knows where maraschino cher cherries come from and yes. divides them by region. I didn't even right. know they were a real cherry. They are a real cherry. That <laughs> they were a candy. I, next time I come by, I will bring some maraschino liqueur. Is um, it maraschino, not maraschino? It's maraschino. Yeah. You it's, have been saying it wrong your whole life. My whole yes. life. My whole life. How it's spelled, it's spelled Maricino, and I'm sure you know we're we're Anglophones, so we get around with mangling all sorts of words. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Actually, for that's you, actually the reason why gin is gin, right? <laughs> gin, you know, the English being famous for not being able to pronounce a whole bunch of different languages, um, you know, that's and fair. screwing up foreign languages all the time. Um, you know, you had that Yennefer, mm -hmm. and then people got Geneva gin. Right. That's how it eventually became the same way That's that, it. you know, tennis love, right? Yeah. A lot of uh, black licorice so, on this, uh, on the. Uh, yeah, aviation. I find it's a lot of black licorice. Right. Yeah. Sorry, we got distracted. Oh, yeah. We, the aviation yeah. is called the aviation because of the last key ingredient, which was really hard to get up until it got revived about, I'd say, almost about a decade ago now, um, is something called creme de violet. And creme de violet is basically a liqueur made with violets. It's purple. It's this purpley blue it's thing. It's so whimsical. You put a little bit of that in the drink and you get this kind of purpley blue haze like you would be flying on, you know, those early planes and you would see the horizon and it would look this kind of, you got the clouds and the purpley blue and that's uh -huh. hence the name of the cocktail. So yeah, that lemon juice... Maraschino, gin, I think it's a delicious cocktail. I actually finally picked up some creme de violet. Oh, great. Uh, so you're hosting down the next party. In, yes, when <laughs> I was down in uh, Texas in our trip on Austin. I was using creme de Yvette before. Oh, no, not the Yvette. How dare you. Oh, Which is good. Caro. Uh, it's, it's good. But it's not it's as good. It's a nice substitute, but it's also made with berries there. So the color isn't quite the same. Uh, you're probably not using enough to make a huge discernible flavor difference but yeah so so i i i I, yeah. I have a pilot's license as you know i fly planes yes um there's no, no way there's no blue. way no the only way i would see and i've well, obviously never done this with, yes. is i'm drinking gin and being like oh it's blue and <laughs> wait you're well, a pilot probably, yeah. yeah i had no idea no no <laughs> i've never know. seen that blue haze which you've beautifully described you've described it so beautifully i've never seen what you've described you know what you're probably right one they were probably wasted because i think like you know <laughs> howard hughes famous aviator yeah right? the the famous movie the aviator right the whole spruce spruce goose spruce yeah debacle yeah. um uh you know i think he was pretty much famous for yeah if, if you don't if you're not familiar with that taking his alcohol really well so he was definitely a good drinker yeah howard he's basically built a gigantic float plane with like 24 engines that yes. flew all of like a minute and got like 10 right. feet off the ground yes <laughs> i mean my numbers are probably completely off but right slightly slightly off but, but i would argue the, though that like, maybe and this is maybe me buying into the romance of the whole story is People probably flew a lot lower back then. That's true. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, maybe you ended up with this kind of slightly blue haze because, like, lower, like, you were you're probably at or below cloud level there instead of flying above, like, modern 747. I guess. That's I don't know. I've never flown humanity. over 10,000 Do not feet. ruin the romance, Mark. <laughs> I will say, though, like, as far as spirits go, I, I think gin has this like this kind of like whimsical romance attached to it very much like whiskey does like when i think of gin i think of like like flappers and like bootleggers and a little and, less violent well, than totally that like i mean yeah whiskey became sort of the american beverage of choice but gin also kind of kept its renaissance and kept going into sort of the cocktail age um, you know, and past the, um, you know, the jazz age and prohibition mm -hmm. because it was so much easier, easier to illicitly make gin sure. than it was whiskey. Like, you can illicitly kind of distill whiskey, but keeping it around in those barrels hidden from people was a lot more difficult than it was, you know, even making like compound gin, with, which is probably what a lot of people were making. 
And by compound gin, I mean cheapest form of gin, you basically take your essential oils and you add it to your distilled base. Yeah. And you got gin. Yeah. You know, sure. Boom, boom, boom. You got my juniper oils and essence and whatever. And off we go. Quick lickety split. Is that the same as bathtub gin? Uh, that's essentially how they would have made probably bathtub gin back then, kind of soaking it in, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, more modern style where you would have a lab and essences of all sorts of botanicals and oils you know, where you could use a little dropper and add what you needed. Wow. Yeah, so there you go. There's a, there's a little bit of a history of gin and, uh, yeah, interesting beverage, I think. Um, and a lot of interesting parallels with whiskey and some interesting uh, connections there. Yeah, yeah, no, they really are. And I mean, like, I summer-wise, spring-wise, I do enjoy more gin-based cocktails. Um, I've never thought of drinking gin straight. Um, but again, I don't know much about gin. And having these drinks straight were actually were quite, really right, quite nice. Mm-hmm. Um, like, very, very, very approachably nice, yeah. pleasant drinks to have. Um, your favorite tonic uh, to have with gin? Always Fever Tree. Um, Always Fever Tree. Always. Spoke. Pretty widely available. I think I've seen it locally here. Uh, Longo's, uh, Whole Foods. Uh, Is that a, a hipster-approved gin uh, tonic? Absolutely. Rather? Fever Tree. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's pretty widely available in the United States and, you know, spread through Europe, too. The great part about Fever Tree sugar actual sugar is sort of used in it this no high fructose corn syrup and just a good solid uh quinine kind of proper flavor in there that's sort of strong and not artificially masked and they also make like a bitter lemon too mm-hmm. um so actual sort of lemon in there you can sort of see the particulates of the lemon kind of floating in there um and that's kind of great if you want to kind of mix an instant gin and tonic there, you don't want to, you don't have the limes handy. You don't want to bother with the lemons. You can pour that straight in your gin and off you go. And I recommend uh, at least 50, 50. I was going to ask you, you got to, got to, got to taste that gin and a really good tip. Um, if you've got some leftover tonic, although if you're buying that fever tree that comes in those tiny little bottles and is really expensive, you probably do not have leftover tonic. <laughs> but if you someone left some Schweppes around at a party or some Canada Dry in that two-liter bottle, and you know it goes so flat so fast, and flat tonic, the so gross. gross. The worst beverage of all time. Um, put that in ice cube trays. Freeze it, and instead of putting the ice in your drink, mm-hmm. use the tonic there so when it kind of dilutes there i stole that from david rosengarten um which is an american uh food and you know beverage guy nice so yeah but definitely hot hot tip there with leftover tonic hot tip awesome um bringing it back to whiskey favorite whiskeys yeah what's your go-to whiskey right now whiskeys good question um i was actually really surprised by that bullet rye that we tried a little while ago mm-hmm. um i actually picked some up when i was through the oh, lcbo no. this weekend yeah. by the way was on discount 20 oh. percent <laughs> off 20 percent off wow. i don't know if they were just delisting it at this particular store this is the wow. advantage of oh. seriously folks you did not tweet that out you should have tweeted that go out. to the suburbs oh, um yeah. it is where good beverages like to go to die um, in the LCBO, so hot tip. Um, yeah, Mike lives in Mississauga. Uh, if yes. you're not familiar with Toronto um, geography, Mississauga is the furniture town of Toronto. It's where we buy all our furniture from. Is that where yes. we buy our furniture? Yeah, they've got IKEAs and other furniture stores. Uh. It's also where the airport is, technically. <laughs> yes, that's technically true. So yeah, if you are flying in through Pearson. Um, you know, yeah, I know the island it. airport has gotten more popular, yeah. but yeah, if you're flying from further away, yeah, you will technically end up in Mississauga. So there you go. There you go. And that's where you buy your booze. That it's a great place to buy your I booze. There, you can get a lot of interesting stuff on discount on occasion. It's true. Scarborough as like well that. has great like yeah. listings because every in Toronto they just buy it. Just people just buy it. Right. It's gone. You yeah. got it. 
the advantage. Stage. Yes. Um, yeah, so I like that. I mean, probably one of my favorites um, we polished off a bottle a long time ago was a Balvini Portwood 21 oh, year. Oh, yeah. So delicious. I remember buying that because it's always good to, to steal a line from How I Met Your Mother to have a scotch old enough to order its own scotch. Um, and, uh, you know, nice. I was having friends over, so I decided to spring for that once. It was a l- still expensive, but cheaper than it is now. I think I looked it up. I think it's about a hundred. It's like three hundred twenty bucks. Whoa! Now in the LCBO. Yikes! Delicious Ouch. scotch. There's a. You could probably buy at least a couple bottles, if not <laughs> yeah. three, 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 six bottles of delicious scotch for that price. So. I don't recommend grabbing that on your own dime yeah. uh, locally here. I'm sure it's much cheaper elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure all the li- few of the listeners will probably be telling us. <laughs> Tweeting. $320. What? What you that much yeah, I see. Yeah. I see. yeah. So yeah, that's definitely always been one of my favorites there. Nice. Nice. Well, Mike. So yeah. Thanks for bringing all this gin. Oh my God. Thanks gosh. for bringing a ton of gin. Um, we're going to go and have gin and tonics now. Cause as we should, as we should. Um, thank you so much for coming on. You're very Thanks, welcome. Mike. Thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me go on about the wonders of gin. Well, we figured we'd go back in history and start with gin. It's That's also, the good thing about cocktails. It's super neat because it's also like super like, there's a thousand different layers of flavor to it. So there it's are. more complex than I think people give it credit for. Yeah. So I think it was nice to talk about Absolutely. It if you like flavored vodka, by all means, please, please try the original flavored vodka <laughs> in, in gin. Uh, it's definitely better than the cupcake yeah. flavored one that you've picked up. Yes. See, this is, this is what they should have done with flavored whiskey. It's just called it something else, which is my point all along. If you're going to take whiskey and pour some, like, maple syrup and smoked hickory or whatever into it, right. just call it something else. Call it something else. Call it, it. Wasky. Wasky? <laughs> I like that. Waskooly Wabbit. Uh, it's like rabbit. Elmer Fudd approved. It's perfect. <laughs> no, thanks, Mike. <gasps> Do it. Um, <laughs> have a good one. Cheers, awesome. guys. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye, everyone. That was so fun. Oh, so Wasky? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>